0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of John. My name is Jonathan Chan. So glad that you can join me as we continue on this series together. We are now embarking on John chapter 10. But before we go on, let's start with a video clip and we'll be right back. Hello, Peter. What's happening? Uh, We have sort of a problem here. (laughs) yeah you apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your tps reports oh yeah i'm sorry about that i i forgot Mm, yeah you see we're putting the cover sheets on all tps reports now before they go out did you see the memo about this yeah 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 i have the memo right here i just uh forgot but uh it's not shipping out till tomorrow so there's no problem yeah if you could just go ahead and make sure you do that from now on, that would be great. And uh, I'll go ahead and make sure you get another copy of that memo. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I, ahead, I have Peter. the memo. I've got it. It's right. Hello, Phil. What's happening? Um. Let's talk about leadership. I was in corporate management for a good number of years prior to pastoring and running a nonprofit. And the word leadership had always been the topic of lunch and learns, mandatory seminars, and especially when companies that I worked for hired business consultants. See, they come in and guilt trip us of how poorly we are as a leader. While I was taking my project management courses at UBC, almost every session had a component reserved to talk about leadership. The question that all these courses, seminars, lunch and learns, TED Talks, YouTube videos, books, and consultants try to answer was always this. What makes a good leader? Then I get this common answer. A leader is servant leadership. What is that? What is servant leadership? It's Open to interpretation many times a it's nebulous a non-succinct catch-all phrase that tends to substantiate the executive's existence right servant leadership so on that note then many books written on servant leadership uh, talk about it they offer different varieties of interpretations and definitions they make a lot of money out of that too Especially, whether, uh, especially in Christian literature, because servant leadership sounds so Christian, right? Today, hopefully, as we explore chapter 10, let's see how Jesus defines leadership. And hopefully, maybe, he can provide us with a fresh look at how we, Christians, can be good leaders wherever we are. And I must say, that word servant leadership It's not even mentioned in the Bible. Okay, let's move on. Let's start with chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. It's interesting, in verse 6, the last verse, when John mentions this figure of speech, the Greek word is parable, which is parable. Jesus is still talking to the Pharisees from chapter 9. After healing the blind man and telling the Pharisees that they are blind because of their self-righteous pride and their desire only for personal glorification in the end of chapter 9, he continues by telling them a parable. A parable with four notable characters. The door, or the gatekeeper, They're used interchangeably. Thief and robbers, again, used interchangeably. Shepherd and sheep. So, door, thief, shepherd, and sheep. There are two immediate points Jesus notes. Number one, the sheep listen to their true shepherd, and the shepherd knows them by name. If the sheep follow someone else, they are not the shepherd's sheep, right? Logically. Number two, The shepherd and the sheep needs to go through the door. Everyone else who doesn't go through the door are either thieves or not sheep. You follow? The Pharisees didn't get it. But instead of explaining the parable to them, Jesus expands it further. First with the door, then with the shepherd and sheep. Before we do that though, let's go on to verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now, remember, the door is what determines whether whether that person comes through is a shepherd or a sheep, right? Or the sheep of the shepherd. All right two notable words in verse seven to nine to explain the door's role. First is saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Again, I'll say that again. Saved and will go in. That's the first phrase that we need to focus on. Out and find pasture. That's the second phrase. It's a little tough in the English grammar to try to separate these two phrases But I tried to combine the words together to reflect to reflect the Greek grammar. Jesus says that whoever enters through him, that person will be saved and be in, and have access to or go out and find pasture. So in and have access to find pasture. Now recall in our previous chapters that the Pharisees, temple priests, and teachers of the law thought that they were saved and had the in as God's children. And their primary concern has always been to stay in and keep those who they don't like out. Jesus, throughout those chapters, including here, says, you're wrong. You're not in. You're not saved unless you go through me by obeying and believing me. Also, unless they go through Jesus, They cannot have access to eternal life and living water, as mentioned in the previous chapters, i.e. in this passage, the metaphor used is pasture. Jesus is the door, the way into salvation, to being God's children, to fullness and eternal life. If Jesus is the door into salvation, what were the Pharisees, who thought they were the leaders and shepherds of Israel, doing? They thought they were the door, keeping people they don't like out. Let's move on. Verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, i.e. only doing it for the money and prestige, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own knows me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus expands again. This time, he identifies himself as the good shepherd. Not only just the door, but the good shepherd. This is important because being a good shepherd was the reason why the sheep would follow him in the first place and listen to his voice, right? If he wasn't good, the sheep wouldn't follow him, right? So how is Jesus a good shepherd? And what can we Christians learn to be good leaders? First, Jesus provides his sheep with abundant life, also known as pasture, as mentioned earlier. He can How can we provide life to those we manage or look after? Are we oppressive, slave drivers, iron fist rulers, fascist dictators that say my way or the highway? Are we cheap and exploitive? Or are we just completely aloof and passive and just don't care? Second, the good shepherd owns his sheep. An example is that Jesus knows his sheep by name. Now, for us managers out there, do we know the names of those who work for us and know them personally? A great example of a good shepherd or a good leader is a man named John Neat, who founded JJ Bean and is currently still the owner of JJ Bean. He once said that one personal thing he wanted to know of his employees, other than their names, was their passions, i.e. what drives them each day. That's pretty cool, right? Because think of how you can properly mentor and care for your uh, associates who work for you when you know what their passions are. You would know what drives them, what keeps them motivated, and ensure that what you use as positive reinforcement is actually relevant for them. If a person cares less about money, but more about Uh, substantial future, then you would rather use substantial future than money to motivate them, right? So for John Neat, it was very important for him to understand each person's passions, other than just knowing their names. Mind you, he knows everybody's names, but on top of that, he knows everyone's passions and therefore is able to be good, to be good leader because you could care for them relevantly. Third, The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, i.e. he fights for the sheep, protects the sheep, and sacrifices himself for the sheep, whereas the hired hand is only there for the money and the title. I know some managers who just want the title and not the responsibilities. They would rather cover their butts rather than fight on behalf of their employees when shit hits the fan. That's not a good leader. A good leader fights for their employees and speaks on behalf of the employees. They defend their employees from wrongful accusations and attacks, whether it be from executives from above or the customers. Those are good managers. Horrible managers are those just there for the title and throw their employees under the bus when things go awry. Now, why would Jesus use the analogy of shepherd and sheep? And why would John emphasize it for his readers, including you and I? It's because in the Old Testament, shepherd was used to describe the leaders of Israel, such as Moses, David, and the kings, judges, and of course, God himself. And later on, the leaders of Israel, later in the OT, they were, ba- they were shepherds as well. They were identified as shepherds. However, they were known as bad shepherds, as described in the prophets. One example is in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse two to four. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness, you have ruled them. Doesn't these shepherds of Israel in Ezekiel sound like the current leaders of Israel whom Jesus is talking to right now? Maybe the Pharisees did understand Jesus's parable, but, when they, but what they misunderstood was when Jesus said that the true shepherds need to enter through the door. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law and temple priests thought they were the shepherds of Israel. But Jesus is telling them no. So Jesus really ripped the title off of them. They're not the shepherds. And because of that, they knew that Jesus was referring to the Old Testament, where God judged the shepherds of Israel. Hence, just like the previous dialogues between Jesus and the, these uh, leaders of Israel, they didn't get it because they didn't want to hear it. Again... Once again, they didn't understand what Jesus was saying because they didn't want to hear it. They knew that they were ignoring their duties and responsibilities as leaders of Israel. They knew that they were exploitive. They were glorifying themselves. They didn't care about the widows, case in point, the previous stories in John. They didn't care about the sick or the injured. They, instead, they fed their pride, i.e. disobeying God. Horrible leaders only care about themselves and their image while shirking their responsibilities. Let's continue. Verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Because Jesus is referring to Ezekiel, he continues to make reference to Ezekiel where God is now addressing himself as the true shepherd. Case in point in chapter 34 of Ezekiel, verse 12. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. You see that? And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. That sounds very familiar in the early parts of chapter 10, right? There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. Doesn't that bring back memories of the feeding of the 5,000? Where Jesus let them sit down on the green pasture, and he fed them? I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed these awful leaders justice. So Jesus is telling the Pharisees that he is the true shepherd, God himself, providing pasture, food, water, healing, and abundant life to his sheep. Things that the leaders of Israel were supposed to do originally. But failed. And not only that, Jesus will gather all his sheep who have been scattered, including those who may not be in the fold yet. In other words, the Gentiles. First the Jews, then the Gentiles. Again, something that the leaders of Israel failed to do. All right, let's move on to 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus did for the past nine chapters. He's been telling them that he's the Christ, but they never listen, right? Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. As always, when we look at John, we need to look at notable mentions by John, like the imageries, and one notable is the Feast of Dedication. Now... If you scour through the Old Testament, there is no such thing as the Feast of Dedication. It came after the Old Testament, right in the what people would call intertestamental periods, which is between the Old Testament and New. And during that time, it, the Feast of Dedication was formed because it celebrated the rededication of the temple and the cleansing of the altar. Now, what happened prior to that? What happened that caught that created this Feast of Dedication? or the need for this Feast of Dedication. Well, there was this dude named Antiochus IV of Epiphanes, the king of Syria. Well, he captured Jerusalem in 167 BC, and he did something really awful in the temple, in the Israel temple, by offering the sacrifice of a pig on God's altar to not God, but Zeus. And he scattered all the blood, pig's blood, in the temple. And what the Jews now have identified this as the abomination of desolation, or some would call the abomination that causes desolation. This king, this awful leader, took a pig, which really the Israelites think is very unclean. He took this pig and sacrificed it on an altar to a false god, a Zeus, as opposed to Yahweh himself. This was an abomination. Because it defiled the temple, it not only defiled the temple, it mocked the people of Israel because, hey, this is completely like a smack in the face and a kick in the nuts. But also, this mocked God. Most of all, the king king was a horrible shepherd who doesn't honor God or have any interest in obeying him. When Antiochus was defeated by the Romans, the Jews took over the temple again cleansed the temple, and rededicated the altar to God. And hence, we have the feast of dedication. Now, why would John then emphasize this feast as the backdrop of this dialogue? Notice what Jesus said about the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel. They are not his sheep, or even they are not even Israel's shepherds. See, early on in John, Jesus already cleansed the temple, right? And so John is telling his readers, including us, that what the Pharisees, temple priests, and teachers of the law did or are currently doing is an abomination, just like Antiochus did in 167 BC. The Pharisees, temple priests, and teachers of the law, when they were encouraging the money changers back there in the temple, when they were ignoring the widow's, uh, uh, the widow's plight, when they were ignoring the sick, and in fact, they were kicking them out, and they were using the temple as their own little mojo or uh, to prop their self-righteousness, Jesus is telling them that they are doing the, exactly the same thing as what Antiochus did by causing an abomination in the temple, and it needs to be cleansed. See, they didn't obey God because they, don't, they didn't listen to Jesus, who is God. They pursue their own agendas, their self-righteousness, and seek glory for themselves. They are, in fact, causing desolation. They are an the abomination that caused God's house a desolate. And therefore, they are not his sheep. They need to be judged, cleansed, and booted out. Hmm. How would you respond if you were with the Pharisees? Well... Let's take a look in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you see, say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Jesus quoted from Psalm 82. So let's take a look at this Psalm and see why Jesus quoted it and why John made mention of it and emphasized it in this passage. Psalm 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Through this psalm, God is judging the gods, sons of Most High. Now, who are they? Well, they are the disobedient leaders of Israel. They failed as God's representatives to give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy. They are supposed to do the godly rules, uh, godly roles among Israel. These leaders of Israel should be actually good godly representatives hence that's why they were called sons they were called gods sons of the most high but they failed now blast well, to this time where jesus is identifying them and talking to the pharisees does this not sound familiar to the current leaders of israel jesus used this psalm not only to say that hey scripture did mention that even human beings are called gods because of their god-given roles So don't accuse me of blasphemy. But he also knew that the Pharisees know their Bibles really well. They should know that Jesus is also addressing their disobedience by quoting this psalm. And because they've been disobedient to God, they are being rebuked by God in Jesus. God in Jesus has now arrived to judge them and the earth. The leaders are basically fired, fired by God. God is telling them through Jesus that you are fired. What a way to do a mic drop, eh? By quoting a psalm in Psalm 82, and that Psalm 82 is basically saying, leaders of Israel, you're fired. So Jesus is telling the Pharisees and the temple priests and the teachers of the law, you're fired. Mic drop, eh? Let's conclude then. Let's circle back to our original question. What makes a good leader in a Christian sense then? I think the best way to answer the question of what makes a good leader is another question. Why do you want to be a leader? Do you want to give life to those who are under your care? Like abundant life, fullness, and allow them to flourish and pursue their passions? Do you desire to provide them with healing when needed? I.e. when they're in emotional distress or they need financial support. Do we provide that? Do we provide encouragement when needed? Do you desire to fight for them on their behalf when shit hits the fan? Uh, Go to bat for them, so to speak? Defend them if they were wrongfully accused or exploited by upper management or by your customers and clients? Are you willing to sacrifice your title for the good of those under your care? I.e., you are willing to put your title on the line, put your management, your leadership, your privileges on the line for the sake of your employees. Do you desire to know your employees well enough That it's not just knowing their names, but their passions, their ethos, what makes them who they are. Do you want to see them succeed, not because their success may help your success, but wholeheartedly see them flourish and live to their fullest potential? See, as I mentioned before, I was in corporate management, and I must admit I've been both a good leader and a horrible leader during my career. See, I made employees cry because I was so concerned about hitting numbers. Like, literally cry. I didn't care about how they felt or how much I pushed them to the brink of breakdown. I was overwhelming them, hyper-micromanaging them, and even forced some folks to work the 12-hour shifts like me on the biggest retail months so that I can hit my numbers and look good, (laughs) plus get my bonus. I've also been... A leader that was only after my image and looking for the next big payday in my earlier years. On the other hand, as I grew and matured and allowed the spirit to work in me, God asked me that hard question, John, why do you want to be a leader? Because if it ain't for those reasons above, and if I didn't say yes to any of the above questions that I've mentioned earlier, John You're an abomination that causes desolation. Yikes! You know, he was right, right? He is right. Um, When I was a leader only aftering my own image uh, to self-glorify myself and just focus on the numbers and hitting targets and making sure that all these employees make me look good. In fact, I was causing desolation. I was an abomination that caused desolation. I did cause desolation. Remember, I made some employees cry. He used my employees then to speak to me and open my eyes to see what he saw. I saw how much I hurt the folks under me. I needed it to change. I needed to embrace the real reasons why I desire to be a leader, to help people, to allow people to flourish, to allow them to to, uh, fulfill their passions and desires and to become the fullest human being that God has created them to be. So the question is, how about you? Why do you desire to be a leader? And if it's not for saying yes to any of the questions above, maybe it's time to reflect on those questions and allow the Holy Spirit to work in each of us to say yes to those questions. Amen. (laughs)